Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, Il Trovatore performers Morris Robinson and Tiffany Townsend, along with fight choreographer Andrew Kenneth Moss, discuss their creative beginnings, the way they kept their creativity during COVID, and of course, Verdi's Il Trovatore, with this episode's host, Susanna Guzman. Thank you so much for having us all be here. This is pretty awesome. For when, when I started, I had no idea. I didn't know opera at all. And my very, very first role debuting at the Kennedy Center was as Dunyasha in The Tsar's Bride. Mr. Robinson, when you first started, what drew you to this? I know, I know that you also are a sports person. So can we tackle how you got into opera first. I went to a high school of performing arts. So I was always around music. I was always around arts. I had been away from it for so long. When I went to college, I went to a military academy. So it was not known for its musical department. There was none. So uh, at the age of 30, when I got back into music and started studying opera, which is when I started, what drew me in was just to be back in that environment where I heard people practicing their violins down the hall and I heard pianos, pianists over here and I heard other singers. And I was like, this is where I belong. You know, I was I was out of one world, which is the sports world. And once you leave that, you really can't get back in it. But my new home, my new love, my my old love came back to me. So I was able to get back to this world of opera. So yeah. You've done what so many singers, I believe, wish they could do. Be ballerinas or athletes first and then segue back into music. <laughs> but because we're talking to students, tell me what high school for the performing arts you went to. So I went to Northside School of Performing Arts in Atlanta, Georgia, and it was kind of like fame. I don't know if kids know what fame is, but it was our version of fame, uh, which is the, the high school in New York where my Connelly went to high school. But um, we talk about the differences between the two, and I know that Andy can talk about this as well. You know, the disciplines are very, very similar. You use your body as your instrument. It takes discipline. It takes mental and intestinal fortitude. It takes commitment. It takes sacrifice. And it takes some talent. You have to be talented enough to go out and play a sport and able to, and you work really hard and sacrifice and practice to get better at that. Same thing with us, with Tiffany and myself. We sing, but we have to work really hard to to bring out the best in ourselves as artists. And it takes a lot of self-sacrifice, a lot of discipline, intestinal fortitude, you know, assiduousness, sticking to it, working really hard to, to maintain your craft, so. That is really lovely. And Andy, I do want to get into talking to you about how your beginnings happened because one of the things that students love more than anything is fight choreography. But I want to follow up with um, Tiffany about how did you get started? I know you're in our Young Artist Program and you're from the South also. How did you find your way to music? Uh, so I, I kind of always was into music. So I started playing piano. Uh, at age seven and kind of continued that up. So I come from a big uh, family that used to sing gospel all the time. And so I grew up in the church and watched my family play like the organ and piano and all of them were in the choir. And I have a couple family members that were also in the Mississippi uh, mass choir. So gospel was a big like influence around, um, but I never sang. So I was always just like the kid that played the piano. And then I got into classical piano and I went to an art school from uh, fourth grade on up. Then I went to a school called Power APAC and I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. 
Um, and then I continued that up until high school and then got into college uh, on a scholarship for piano. And then uh, I also had like a side gig as a church musician. And so what happened was uh, uh, my freshman year, second semester of my freshman year, I was practicing in a practice room gospel to teach the choir how to sing songs and a voice teacher there heard me singing in the practice room and knocked on the door and was like, you should take voice lessons and then went away. And then I thought about it for a couple of weeks and was like, actually, I mean, I'm already a music major. I don't think it would be kind of weird for me to take voice lessons. And then I started taking voice lessons and found uh, operatic voice and kind of found that I liked it a little bit more than piano. Um, <laughs> uh, don't tell my piano teachers that. But yeah, so I got into it and really kind of fell in love with it and started believing in it and started actually, you know, getting some outside opinions on it. And someone was like, you should audition for all of the big name schools. And I was like, I don't really think that I'm good enough to do that. And then I ended up getting into Juilliard and I was like, okay, well actually that I have to take this seriously and, you know, started uh, taking it seriously. And um, yeah, but it's been kind of really amazing, valuably because uh, I use my piano skills every day, um, even though I'm not like practicing, you know, the Rachmaninoff or the Beethoven sonatas anymore, I'm still like using those skills today, so. That is so impressive. Being an instrumentalist in opera is one of the biggest advantages that a singer, that any kind of person can have, frankly, because I believe we all realize that knowing music makes you creative across the board. Andy, let me just tell you, we do this little show where we have a flutist playing uh, just some little Ravel piece. And these two students would stand up in the audience and say, I love Mozart. And the other one would say, that's Ravel. It's Mozart, Ravel, Mozart. And they pull out long swords. And then they did a fight down the aisle. And they were the most popular. We could have been like singing the most difficult coloratura and all they wanted was to touch the swords. How did you discover what it was like to be a, wep a weapons person, a person who likes to show fighting and tell us about how you got interested in fight choreography. Sure, uh, like Morris, I started off as an athlete. Um, I was uh, drafted and had a scholarship to play college baseball and I got hurt. And so my career ended rather abruptly, um, but I had always done uh, theater and music for fun. Like most people, you know, I started playing an instrument in fourth or fifth grade and and so music had always been a part of my life and and had always enjoyed it and so i decided to go to school for musical theater and i thought that i would be doing that and um when i got into college i took a stage combat class and it just really clicked with me uh, i had been an athlete I, I understood my body and i had taken martial arts since i was a kid as well um more for athletic prowess really than for any sort of um career aspiration but when I got into that class, um, I got to do kind of my two favorite things. I got to be an athlete, but I got to also be a performer. And when those two things come together, it's very powerful. You know, um, action is very exciting and, and weapons are incredibly romantic because they are from this bygone era. Swords and, and knives and, and even firearms to a certain extent are sort of outside of our everyday purview. So when we get to see them and interact with them and when we see them in person, um, it's often romantic. And some of that is how we use them in the arts. And some of that is just the reality of um, looking at beautiful paintings and seeing some 
uh, gallant rogue with a sword on his hip. And so uh, in college, taking that class, I just got hooked. And so I asked the teacher if I could continue to take it and be a TA. And I took it three years of my four years in college. And then when I got out, I was um, that teacher's assistant for a number of years and assisted choreographing. And then when I moved to New York City to be an actor, I did the same thing. I thought, well, I'll do some fight gigs to you know subsidize while I'm trying to be a Broadway performer. And um, I just started getting really lucky and getting a lot of fight gigs. And my background in martial arts and in dance really um, allowed me to choreograph in kind of an, an interesting way that a lot of people weren't. Um, so I, I started to get more and more opportunities because the, the fighting that I was creating was a little bit more lyrical, a little bit more storytelling. It was based in how everybody's body move rather than sort of a more traditional combat style and trying to make everyone look like a Three Musketeer or um, the man in black from Princess Bride. I, I try to use everybody's body the way that they do. Each one of you has shown that in order to be a successful person, as all three of you are, you have had parallel careers. The, the big thing that you all have in common right now is you're using your parallelism to tell this absurd story of Trovatore about a woman who accidentally throws her son into the fire as a baby, raises another one, and still carries this vengeance. Morris, could you tell us, you play Ferrando in this? Yeah, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about your character and yeah. how and what you bring, what do you, how do you make us make sense of this crazy opera? I don't know if I help you make sense of it, but <laughs> the very beginning, of, it's, you know, opera is notoriously known to, to have convoluted tales. And this is one of the most convoluted ever. But um, my first, the, the introduction to the opera, the first thing you hear, is my character come out and sing Alerta. And I, I wake up normally the troops and in this instance some children, and I try my very best to tell the story of what this opera actually is. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm going through every aspect of it as best I can, from the best I can remember and how it affected me to see the, uh, the lady move the nurse out of the way, get the baby, throw him in the fire. I found the, I saw the baby burning. I saw it, I'm telling the kids this, it's kind of a, it, in the opera, it is written such that this is an old folklore type tale that I utilize to to entertain whoever I'm speaking to, and this is the kids. So I'm telling this this story, uh, and I use it to kind of spook them out and make them frightened, and you know, and then it, you know, we go on about our business. But as the opera goes, this story actually starts unraveling right before my eyes, and I'm the person with my uh, with my boss, Luna, the count who actually says, you know what? I think I've seen her before, you know? And eventually I end up being the person that nails her. I'll say, you know what, that's her. So, and, uh, and it, it just all climaxes at that moment. So that's my role in this. Uh, I'm kind of the muscle of the count. Uh, he's the guy in charge. I'm kind of the guy that's his muscle. And uh, Andy's trying his best, his absolute best to teach me how to be an effective marksman with the sword. And I just can't get it. <laughs> it's just so hard for me. It's, yeah, I'm a, I'm a ball player, so I play offensive guard. So we always call it a controlled range. So I know what my assignment is, and I just meticulously go about smashing folks. He is so much, you know, when you're in that type of environment, you want to fight. So it's like there's no rhyme or reason to it. And I always knew, because I studied martial arts too, he who loses his cool loses the fight. And he has such a disciplined way of teaching us how to do these things that, I'm learning, but it's still very challenging. But uh, 
but that's my role. I'm the muscle. I'm the bully. I'm the bad guy. I'm the guy that you know is is called into to to handle business. So yeah. Andy, since we're talking about fight choreography, and I don't know how much Inez fights, can you tell us about, you know, it is a pretty frightening thing. Uh, I know every time that I step on stage and someone's, I, I look at the schedule and it says Guzman choreography, the choreography that's always a little daunting to me. And I was the best person in pre-ballet, so I've had lots of training. <laughs> how do you, how different is it working with professional singers who can count and working with say Broadway people, say in a West Side Story or one of the, the Beauty and the Beast scenes and Gaston scene, I bet you have to choreograph stuff like that. How is different working with, with opera singers? So it's funny you mentioned West Side Story. I've done that for musical theater houses and I've also done that for opera houses. And, and the difference really is how you use the music. You know, for, for musical theater, for, for a Broadway style show, when you're talking about um, how you use, cause you have that great, you know, uh, all that great Bernstein uh, to play with. Um, what you're using there is it's a lot more about how the body is expressing the music. When you're working with opera singers, it's a lot more how the music is controlling the body. And there's pros and cons to each. Music singers like to count. They understand the music in a different way and they are anticipatory of it. Um, you'll often uh, allow uh, opera singers to be striking and, and, and moving with the music uh, as opposed to against it. Whereas when you're working with dancers or people dance training, they can use those sort of contrapuntal moments. They can go in syncopated rhythms to the music. Um, and it's not that the understanding of music is uh, better or worse in either. It's just how you tend to use movement in music. Um, opera singers tend to be um, creative with the lyric line inside of the musical structure, whereas dancers are creative with the movement line inside the musical structure. So it's about understanding how everybody uses music and about how everybody reads music and processes music and then how we can get them to express that music. So West Side Story at an opera house is much more on beat. West Side Story at a um, musical theater production or at a straight theater house tends to be a little bit more um, free flow inside of the music because they can find themselves landing on beats where they need to and off rhythm, but beautiful in the moments where they can be as well. So it's a great challenge either way because it, it requires me to really know the music and understand it and, and be able to communicate clearly with the maestro and with the piano players and, and accompanists and, and collaborative piano players, depending on who you have in the room with you, um, what you need from them and how we can play with tempo and rhythm uh, to allow the performers to do the same thing. That is such, it's such a difficult thing as far as the counting, getting in. And if you're one of those performers or singers who straddles both worlds, you're going to go five, six, seven, eight, or you're going and one and two and three and four. But one of the beautiful things about being a, an opera singer who's either a mezzo or is a young artist is doing the roles like Inez. I always say that we have the best seat in the house because we stand next to someone who has to do a lot of heavy lifting while we pretty much lift a glass of water to help them, you know, while we sing something or we're the, we're the voice of the audience. How do you find that you prepare for a role like Inez, which doesn't have big arias or duets, very, very um, important role, but how do you do something like that as opposed to a Fiordaligi? Um, well, I just, I just, I think I, I try to imagine myself as, as the character, as uh, Inez and in my daily life, like as a person who's like 
seen friends that, you know, are thinking about taking paths or making decisions that will ultimately um, be their downfall and trying to warn them about it. Um, and so I think she's a very important character, um, both as like her friend, her best, one of her good friends that is trying to warn her of like the things that are going to happen, but also at the same time as a person who's trying to really, really understand. I mean, she's she's got two men <laughs> fighting for her affection. So at the same time, being drawn to that um, romantic kind of uh, view is also a very important thing. Uh, that I think Inez is also fighting with and so uh, but still remaining in her role as like trying to make sure that she keeps it together and that she stays away from the drama which she doesn't do but I think that's a really important thing <laughs> that she at least tries to do so. Well you sound like you make Inez a really good friend to her. That is super <laughs> Well, we're, we'll be seeing this production of Trovatore streaming, if I'm not mistaken. So I want to just address that with a two-part question. Morris, can you tell me what you've been doing during COVID? How have you kept busy? And then I'll ask you later what's next. So first, how has COVID affected your calendar? Well, my calendar was wiped out on March the 12th, 2020. Um, everything I had going, which was really big, a lot of big things are happening, but it all got obliterated because of the pandemic. So what I do to keep myself busy, uh, personally, I spend a lot of time with my family. I uh, did a lot of boating, a lot of fishing, a lot of hanging out, just kind of spending time getting my kid ready to play football and that kind of thing. Just, you know, spending time with him mostly that I would not have ever gotten had my career kept going. So that's kind of the silver lining behind it all. But to keep myself together vocally and artistically was a challenge. Um, I think we all have had to try to create and find ways to express ourselves artistically and keep ourselves relevant and satisfy the the, the desire and the burning that we have inside of us to deliver art. So there's been lots of Zoom calls, there have been lots of Zoom meetings, there have been lots of camera performances with your phone and, and singing in your, you know, in your living room with recorded recordings. So it's become a new way to present present art. And it's kind of been out of necessity, but it certainly doesn't replicate nor replace being in a live theater. That is such a challenge. I find that challenge for myself. And I'm sure, literally, Morris, all you have to do is open your mouth and even just talk the words and we will <laughs> we will just love them. But I find that it's, it's akin to running a marathon and staying in shape for it if you don't keep in shape. Right. Andy, have you had that experience with, because you have a, a little bit a little bit better because you can be in, if you're doing a fight scene, you can be in full protective garb and you've got something nobody wants to get. You have an automatic social distancing thing. Have have you, how has COVID affected your particular craft? Um, training has stayed pretty regular. Cause like you're saying, we've got 32 to 34 inches of steel in our hand. And so that keeps us six feet away from our partner. Um, so training has gone well, but for the most part, martial arts facilities all closed, you know, because we couldn't be in that contact. We couldn't be in gym. So solo training sort of became what it was. And that's, that's often really nice because it allows you to work on your own specificity and technique. So that's been great. But I've also been for very fortunate that I've always been in the classroom teaching stage combat. Um, I, I teach at a rival performing arts high school. I've been very fortunate because I've been able to be in the classroom now. For stage combat, it's been um, theory. So we've been, you know, analyzing film and, and, and TV scenes. So that's been really fun too, because it allows me to 
show other mediums to kids that are theater and opera students or, or dance students to uh, expose them to what camera work is like and how to understand it and break it down. And it's also just fun for me to look at great classic sword fighting scenes, you know, Douglas Fairbanks and Errol Flynn and all these greats, uh, Bob Anderson, and, and, and watch these fights that are truly fantastic. And then, you know, I was lucky enough to stay in the classroom for acting and audition classes. So the craft stayed active. It, it wasn't quite as full-throated as, as I would have liked to have been, but um, we we're very fortunate that our, our classes were able to continue in a hybrid fashion. So I didn't have to walk away from the arts entirely. Um, I was very fortunate that way. Tiffany, how did you survive artistically during COVID? Um, interestingly enough, uh, the Young Artist Program, gratefully, did not really um, shut down. So we just kind of all switched to Zoom. And um, there was a really beautiful thing that happened between a bunch of the young artists uh, around the US uh, in trying to um, find a way. And so we all put on recitals first at the beginning and then kind of continued to like find ways to put out recitals and content. And all of us learned by necessity how to deal with technology and what mics to buy and how to sing with uh, piano tracks and all of these different things. So, um, and we've continued to have coachings on Zoom, even though they weren't ideal, but um, we still use those piano tracks to have coachings and voice lessons. And um, still, we still try to do the best that we could. But for me, um, I think I just, I took a lot of time to just think and um, be in my own space, which was nice. And then also because I was so far away from my family because I was here and but my family and my friends, we all found ways to like have random Zoom and Facebook parties and FaceTime parties. And a lot of people that I haven't seen in years, I was able to see last year. So that was a really beautiful thing as well. Um, because every, I mean, we all were like, just unfortunately at home. And um, one of like my family members would be like, okay, we're gonna have a random cookout Zoom meeting where everyone's going to make cookout for themselves and bring it on the Zoom, which was really, we all thought was a bad idea, but then got on and it, we had such an amazing time. So I, I was able to really, really just be myself and, and it was nice. And I guess that, that those coachings and trying to figure out how to like continue to do recitals and film auditions in my apartment um, really kept me um, trying to be in shape because I had to sing for the camera. Just like Morris said, that is because it was forever. Morris, did you have any, were you already um, technologically proficient when COVID began? I like to think I was. I'd never used Zoom before, I don't think. But my kid is, uh, he's really into video production, that kind of thing. So he has the laptop, the ring light, the cameras, the microphone, all that stuff. So when I need to do something, it was kind of like, hey, let me, you know, let me borrow your talent for a minute. So he actually got some, he actually got some production money out of doing that for me a few times because he was able to link the TV to the track, to the camera, to the this and the that, and it made it work. I got him a tripod and that kind of thing. So with cameras or phones, he was able to do it for me. So you know, the teamwork really worked, and uh, I, I paid him a couple dollars to do it, so it worked out pretty good for him. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, what is your fee, Dad? I want a, I want a percentage of your fee. And I'm like, well, your lights are on, so this is your fee. <laughs> No, I did pay him something, so it was pretty cool. He, he helped me where I was lacking. So. That is so lovely. Was there any parallel, like, job opportunity that popped up for you, Morris, during the during COVID that you would never have thought 
I did Rigoletto in the baseball field with the, in Tulsa. And then I did a Good to Demerang in a parking garage twice. That was amazing. So you did sing live without a mask during COVID. That was definitely as far as it goes. But I mean, we had a great time and we did it again in Chicago. But things like that, you know, Atlanta Opera did some really creative things. The L.A. Opera allowed me to be the first of their uh, living room concert series. So, you know, we all were creative in trying to find uh, venues and avenues in which to express ourselves and you know, I was lucky enough to be a part of a lot of those things. So, and while those roles didn't keep my voice in shape like it should have, or because it's not like seeing a real solid, a full opera, but it was enough to keep things going. So, for those of you who don't know our listeners, I have to brag about you because it was just stunning. It was like a movie <laughs> driving, a driving movie moving. Yeah. So you're in your car and you went through <laughs> so many different levels. And the beauty of it was it was real opera singers really singing. And in the final scene, instead of getting on a horse to go away, the wonderful Brunhilde was in a Mustang, a Ford, Ford Mustang. Mustang convertible standing on top and the performance I saw was incredibly blustery so here is our Brunhilde with her hair streaming <laughs> holding on to the windshield and singing like mad it was stunning and it was such a beautiful thing to see that art cannot be contained art yeah. has to reach out and even through our own windshields, it caught us. Tiffany, what did you do that might've been unusual or fun? Did you have a sourdough starter kit going or did you um, start sewing or is there anything fun besides the young artist thing that you did? Um, well, I also got to film. I got to film an opera in opera, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, an opera that I would have never thought about or knew about doing. Uh, it was called Penny. Um, and it was about a uh, young autistic girl who's finding her way in life. So that was, that was a really beautiful thing. We filmed that. But other than uh, actual music, I strangely got into it because I was watching Netflix, a lot of Netflix shows. Uh, I, I watched all the Netflix shows. I got into Korean dramas. And by way of Korean dramas, I also got into K-pop. So, <laughs> and I went down the rabbit hole and now I like really listen to a lot of K-pop. So that was another thing that I would have not gotten into had it not been for the pandemic, so. Andy, what did you do though? What do you, when you teach at a school like that, do you live in that area, the Palm Springs area or do you um, live on campus or how did, what did you do? Cause you were there all the time then. Yeah, I live up in Idlewild. Beginning of the pandemic, I lived uh, in a house. And then um, I decided to, because we weren't sure what was going to happen, if the school was going to stay open, if we were going to go remote. So I decided to give up my lease. And um, I uh, wasn't sure if I was going to stay here or go somewhere else to be remote and be with family. But I wound up staying in town. I moved on to campus. Um, and it was great because it, it sort of, um, there were other people who lived on campus, so it never quite felt as lonely as it could have if I was just in my house in town, not really doing anything. So it was nice to sort of have that. And, and we also sort of did um, uh, get togethers, all the people, all the other teachers who lived on campus, we would get together and have outdoor adventures in, in either one of the big promenade fields or the amphitheater. And we would sit very far apart and use our stage voices and yell to each other and, and just sort of be together, but very apart. And, and that made it very exciting. And I do have to say that um, I did develop a new guilty pleasure during the pandemic. I started online gaming, which I'm thoroughly embarrassed about. 
but I'm deep, deep into some online gaming on my PlayStation now, and it's fantastic. Wow, I, I, that is so nice, and I and I echo exactly what you said, what Tiffany said, that in an odd way, it was a lovely way to reconnect with people who you may not have had a chance to to hang out with, but who were looking for connections on Zoom, whether it was celebrating someone's birthday, whether it was the cocktail evening. Thank you so much for being with us today, and you have a wonderful day. Stay healthy and be well. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Bye.